0: From the bedroom to the boardroom and in all the hallways in between, we are designing conversations on a daily basis. And perhaps one of the most neglected but most important conversation of all is the one we have with ourselves. The question is, how intentional are we, though, about the design of these conversations? When I came across today's guest, Daniel Stillman, it occurred to me that despite not only having but leading conversations day in and day out, No one had ever really taught me the art of how to design one, and nor had I really even sought out how to design one myself. Unlike most other areas where technology has eliminated previous methods or made them significantly less desirable, communication is an area where the number of choices keeps increasing. Today, not only do we have the challenge of knowing when what type of communication is appropriate, but also how best to facilitate a conversation through that medium or platform can be equally as daunting. When should I write an email? What's the difference between a LinkedIn post, a Twitter post, or an Instagram post? When should I use an emoji? When and where are things appropriate? Should I make a phone call? Should I meet with someone face-to-face? How can I better engage with people across all the different platforms where I want to reach my audience? I mean, the list of how and where to ignite a conversation is endless. And so I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, who's here to share his method to the madness. While the number of choices and how best to utilize them can seem daunting, the opportunity it presents for anyone to have a voice and share their ideas is incredible. Leadership today, as I'm sure you heard, is not just about having a title or a role. What you really need today is the ability to ignite conversations around your ideas and your interests to achieve the outcomes you desire. It's my pleasure to introduce you today to Daniel Stillman. Daniel designs conversations for a living and insists that you do too. As an independent design facilitator, He works with clients and organizations of all shapes and sizes, from Google to Visa and many more to name a few. He helps them frame and sustain productive and collaborative conversations, deepen their facilitation skills, and coach them through the innovation process. His first book, The Paper Airplane Experiment and the 32nd Elephant, is about origami and teams. And yes, it's as strange as it sounds. Daniel also hosts The Conversation Factory, a podcast where he interviews leaders, change makers, and innovators on how they design the conversations in their work and lives. He's here today to share how we can better design conversations and also give us a preview inside his new book, Good Talk, How to Design Conversations That Matter, releasing exactly one month from today on April 2nd. If you haven't had a chance already, I'd love if you could take a moment to rate and review the show. It's through that that I'm able to get guests like Daniel on here to be able to bring value and share these great ideas and strategies and stories with you week after week. Thanks everyone for all your support and join me now for my conversation with Daniel Stillman. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often, and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin, and how do you develop the mindset and skill set to be successful? Welcome, everyone, to the Sprint to Success with Design Thinking podcast. I'm your host, Saba Kidwai. Join me each week as I share the stories and strategies from the world's leading researchers and practitioners about why they believe the answer lies. In practicing design thinking. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Sprint to Success. And thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, it's so interesting when people think about design thinking, so often they think about the making or the product or, you know, the outcome or something physical perhaps. But one of the things that I would really love to kind of just start off with is having you introduce yourself and really just kind of sharing your experience and vision and really just your definition of what design means to you.
1: Yeah. Well, so let's, let's start there design is one of these sort of hilariously provocative words i was talking to a friend of mine who's working on a book and he was told to not use the word design in the title because it would exclude some people and design is definitely something that we think of as know there's this classical definition that design is making things look better and you know to to design is to make a design for a design i studied industrial design which is like designing objects for mass manufacture but we've all been designing for a long time um so like design as a as a maybe this is going too far back but (laughs) design is like a job is really recent Right. So we've been we've been making things intentionally as people for a really long time. And Herb Simon's definition, Nobel Laureate Herb Simon, has probably got the most broad and cool definition of design, which is to devise courses of action aimed at at changing existing situations into preferred ones. And I like to summarize that when I when I teach design thinking to people, I ask, raise your hand if you're allowed to make things worse on purpose in your job, and then nobody's hand goes up. Like, who here raise your hand if your job is to make things better uh, by accident, <laughs> right? And then we're left with like that third part of the Venn diagram, which is making things better on purpose, and that's design. And so I think. Everybody designs something in their life, whether it's um, your wedding or a party or a meal, like we design, everything we do is designed in some way, shape or form. And whenever there's intentionality, there's design.
0: I absolutely love that. You know, and it's one of the things that's so fascinating is hearing how different people define design, but that idea that you have of making things better on purpose, I think is so succinct. I love that.
1: Thanks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, so tell me, Daniel, at what point, because, you know, like I shared a little bit with the audience in the introduction that everything for you is about the art and design of a conversation. So tell me at what point or what experience led you to think about wow, we need to start making conversations better on purpose.
1: Well, I mean, as soon as I got out of design school and I started working in a design consultancy, I was hit over the head with all the stuff that nobody teaches you in design school, which is the business part, the client management part, the just navigating, okay, well, we wanna do, what's the future of blank? And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? And what's your goal? And how long will, do, you, do we have to do this? And how, how big is your vision? And by the way, we need to talk to customers and all these different stakeholders and find out what they think and know and mean. And so I don't think I knew or called what I did designing conversations, but there were surely a lot of conversations that needed to get designed. And you get a crash course in designing them once you're out in the real world. It wasn't until much, much later that I worked with a group in Australia called Second Road. Uh, They're a consultancy that they're actually acquired by Accenture maybe a year ago. They called their facilitative practice conversation design, which I thought was a very um, absurd concept when I first heard it. I was like, you're not designers and what the hell does that even mean? And, but it really tickled my brain and, and got me thinking, well, what is, what is a conversation made out of? And if we are designing it, and I started to open my eyes to this idea that all along that's what I was doing was every time I was making an agenda, I was designing the conversation. Every time I made a discussion guide to talk to uh, customers, I was designing the conversation. Um, every time I coached one of my clients on when to step in and when to wait, wait a little bit uh, in the customer interviews, I was designing the conversation and so that that was just like you know on the the absolute like basic level i was like wow this is what have i what have i been designing for right because when we talk about design design implies this purpose and so the question is like what are you designing for in industrial design we're designing for mass manufacture and user experience design where I worked for a number of years, you're generally designing for a digital experience. And so when you start doing service design, you're designing all these touch points that you're coordinating to make an experience. And so are you designing for ease? Are you designing for profitability? Are you designing for joy, right? And so this, this design, the flip side of design, I guess, is um, thinking about like, what's your heuristic? Like, what's your rule of thumb? like To what end are you designing these things that you're designing? And I think generally in design thinking for many years, I was designing my conversations for speed and efficacy right and it was only in the last couple of years that I've discovered you can design your conversations for connection and slowing down and meaning and significance and purpose and all those other things that uh, lots of other people design their conversations for that naturally
0: yeah and and I love that and it's like like you said as well, it's something that you know you don't always think of but yet we are always doing and It was one of the parts in your book that I actually really liked. And I know we hear this all the time, but the fact that you were able to make a connection between these two ideas, I thought was really significant. And that one was the idea that today anyone can really be a leader. Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of times with design, you know, sometimes there's this like barrier where, you know, not everyone really sees themselves as a designer. And um, there's obviously different, different, you know, Types of designers and different roles and whatnot, but I'd love if you could start off kind of with this idea about how as individuals, we carry out conversations and, you know, I really enjoy your email newsletter. And I think one of the ones you sent recently was about the conversation that takes place between your two ears, you know, it's the one that you have with yourself. And so I'd love if you could start off by talking, taking us through kind of like, you know, how as individuals, we relate to conversations and your ideas
1: around that. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot of questions in there. And so I'll try to, <laughs> I'll try to peel them apart. Um, I'll, yeah. So, I mean, the conversation with ourselves. Well, so there's two things that I want to address there. One is like that we all are leaders in the sense that in a, in a conversation, in a meeting, no one can actually stop you from talking. Like right now, you could actually, you could mute me because right, you're you're in control of this interface that our conversation is in. right? Conversations have this place here in this digital realm where you actually have some control. You can hang up, right? You don't have to listen to me, but you can't stop me from talking. you might You might not like what I, I'm going to say, but I can say what's on my mind. It's really only like what keeps us from saying what we think ought to be said is fear. And Fear the flip side of fear is usually fear fear of something A person has power over us, you know, like in our personal relationships We're afraid to say something to our significant other because they might not love us anymore. They'll leave We're afraid to say something to our boss because maybe they'll fire us We're afraid to say something in a group of people because you know, we won't be we won't be understood and we'll feel ostracized and so we have the physical power of speech, but there's these other things that are keeping us from speaking. Um, it's funny. There's like, as soon as you, and this is a total tangent and I apologize, but one of my favorite movies is this movie called Tampopo. It's this Japanese classic uh, about a, a a woman who wants to become the best ramen chef she can. And, and it's a very weird, weird movie. I saw it way, way too young. Um, and if you watch it, you'll understand why. Uh, but, there are, there's a scene where there's a group of people ordering uh, a meal. It's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's in Japan. There's this group of men, and, and there's clearly like some older executive types. And then there's this like young guy with like his hair's a mess, and he's like carrying everybody's binders. And they sit down to this meal, and the waiter goes and asks somebody what they'd like to eat super fancy French restaurant. They're in a private room. And the first guy's like, oh, you know, I I don't know. Give me a second. And like a third guy's like, oh, I don't know. Give me a second. And then the third guy's like, "Um, okay, well, I'll just have like, I'll have the salad and the soup. He orders something pretty simple and he orders like a Heineken. Like not what you would order at like the super fancy French restaurant. And as soon as he places that order, the next guy sort of like hems and haws, but he winds up ordering the same thing. And then like everybody just – does the same thing after that, like all everybody until you get to this young guy and the young guy goes to the waiter. and He goes, you're, you're, um, I see you have canals, uh, made in this particular style. Did your chef study at such and such place? And the waiter's like, you're very well informed, sir. Um, yes, he did do this. And, and, and so the guy starts to order this ridiculous meal just perfectly from the menu and the waiter super impressed. Meanwhile, his boss is kicking him in the shins nonstop because he's speaking out of turn. He's um, not going along with what everyone else has done. And he literally ignores his boss kicking him in the shins. because he's like, I'm here in this amazing French restaurant. I've got this amazing chef in the back. I've got this maitre d' here who knows what he's talking about. And I'm just going to order the perfect meal from the wine to the dessert to the cheese course. And the waiter is like, very good, sir. Excellent order. And everybody in the room is like so ashamed that they just ordered this totally average meal and didn't ask any questions of the waiter and just totally missed their opportunity." And I love that moment because I think life is definitely like that. This, this kid was being kicked in the shins by his boss. <laughs> and <laughs> his, his choice was um, shut up or not. And he was like, I'm just going to order the best meal I can. And so I, right. I feel like every day we are, we are faced with these options. And it is not easy. Because who knows if he got fired after that scene. Because they, they, they do a cut. and We never actually find out what happens to him and and this is this is what's up so what was the conversation he was having with himself right
0: right what
1: was he was he obviously he noticed he was being kicked in the shins right and maybe he was um worried and maybe he was brave and maybe he was um stupid <laughs> i don't know and so <laughs> but i feel like we have these choices that are available to us and one of the things that i think that's important in the book is that some people don't see certain choices. So there's two levels of the conversation we have with ourselves. There's like, who's in the conversation? Like the voice that says, oh, I have to be perfect in order to start. Not hypothetical at all. We all have that. It's like, oh, I have to be perfect in order to start. And I have to be perfect in order for it to matter. And uh, the just do it voice. But there isn't like a, a third or fourth voice. Sometimes we have just this limited set of com- of voices that we have a dialogue with, usually over and over and over again. And that's what therapy is for, uh, and that's why people go to retreats and why people take you know drugs to try and kickstart their brains into like having a new set of voices in the in the in the room. Uh, one of the things that I've learned in my own therapy is uh, there's, there's inner voice work and there's inner family system work where you try to actually have a conversation with those voices instead of just being like, Oh God, you're right. There is no point for me to do this. Right. Cause I've got that okay. voice in my head that says like, Oh dude, nobody cares. Like there's just no point. Uh, and then I go, Oh, you're totally right. Voice that is telling me that nobody cares The the, and then and instead of saying, well, why do you think that nobody cares? And what's the evidence? What's your evidence? Treating it like we would treat a negotiation with a tough negotiator.
0: Right. right. And, so,
1: so, yeah, sorry, please. I'll, I'll no, break but, break in. Stop me, for God's sakes, because no, no, I could just... No,
0: no, no. I just think that that's such a powerful idea. And I think it's something that, you know, even the best of best of us struggle with. So I think even the people who are out there doing all of these things struggle with it. So, like, I can't even imagine what it's like for people that, you know, don't even know how to sort of take that step, but have an idea and want to do something and want to be able to overcome that fear. Um, I don't know if this is a good place to talk about the conversation OS, but we can wait as well if you think that's better. But what strategies would you share for somebody you're stuck in that place, you know, and you have that voice and you either want to become more self-aware or you want to be able to shift the dialogue that you're having. Yeah. What are some strategies that you might suggest? Well, yeah, to so
1: this is, this is, is and, and, and thank you for bringing it up because like I was super nervous about making the conversation. OS Canvas because it's it's not, you know, the term MECI, mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. It's a great acronym. Uh, yeah. And the idea that, you know, in order to have a true data set or a true set of vectors to like solve the challenge, we have to have this totally perfect data set. But as I was, you know, the last couple of years while well, I've been thinking these thoughts and uh, doing the research and, and hosting my own podcast. I've been trying to like find ways to bring in this conversation design perspective into my facilitation work. And one day in a workshop, I just, I tried to, I write up the smallest set of things that I thought mattered. And so I I would just ask you, like when you're designing a conversation, what do you think you actually are designing? What are, what are, what are designable elements? What are addressable elements in a conversation? Like, let's just talk about it like what do you think, think what do you think is addressable
0: yeah i think for me one of the things that i try to look for when designing conversations is um emotions yes how how do you feel about something because So much, I think oftentimes, especially I think today, what many people are tasked with is designing for change, Mm. designing for things that many of us are uncomfortable with. And so I think, you know, uh, the people who are, you know, either experimental or okay with trying something new, you know, oftentimes, you know, kind of like me, get placed in these situations where you're doing something because it's either a passion or you just enjoy it, but you haven't really thought so much about the intentionality Mm. of design. Yeah, Like I said, like, Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, your work really struck me. So for me, one of the things I look for is how do I help people bring emotions to the forefront about what they're thinking and feeling so we can address those through a conversation?
1: Yeah. So like there's actually we've talked about emotions and intentions and people. Right. Those are at least three things that are addressable in, in conversations for sure. Conversations have a time and a place. And when we design an agenda, we're designing like how much time are we gonna to give to each thing? That's like right. sort of these like really basic elements of like, well, should we talk about how we feel about it for five minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes or the whole time? Right. Right. One of the reasons why i oh, sorry, different. go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say another one I really struggle with is how often, I mean, even if I'm thinking about my classes, the time for reflection, the time for talking, the time for sharing, the time for actually having that dialogue and processing is the one I feel like that gets cut the most.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. You're not wrong. Uh, and people don't like usually talking about emotions. No, Emotions are actually not on the conversation OS because I find that they're actually hard to um, ad- touch and feel. Uh I, I would place them inside of this broader idea of what's the invitation to the conversation because we've all been in conversations where people are like I'm angry at you, <laughs> right? Yeah, you right. Know, it's <laughs> like I'm unhappy with your performance so far, uh, uh, employee, boyfriend, uh, or <laughs> you know family member. It, it's the yeah. same conversation of like you haven't been you know coming to. That's not actually a great way to start a conversation. Um,
0: but it so often is though, isn't it? Especially yeah. if you think about personal lives or even really in the workplace, sometimes it's like so much bent up frustration yeah. um, that then, you know, explodes and, you right. know, but really is that but Right. And,
1: and when will that ever get us what we want to need? Right? right. So that's exactly. where I say like, what's a safe invitation into the topic? If We say like, how might I express my disappointment with you? Uh, <laughs> that's not really how might we question that anybody. It's like, how might we discuss how we feel about the state of the kitchen right now, right? <laughs> and, you know, I, I joke and I, I talked about this recently. My my fiance, who I love very much, took the, I, I was in the room and I was like, what is that scraping metal noise in the house? And it was, uh, she was taking out the ironing board, which I never use, I have one. Because, you know, it's it's a good idea to have one. I have, ne- I like, rarely ever use it. And I was like, oh, wow. She's, she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do some ironing. Uh, I have some stuff that I want to iron. So I'm just going to hang it on the ironing board and I'm going to get to it. I'm like, cool. So, like, two days later, I was like, hey, honey, how's it going with your ironing project? <laughs> right? <laughs> and she was like, and she was like, well, I'm, I'm getting ready to get started to start doing it. And I was like, take me through that process. <laughs> Tell me more. And she was like, yeah, it's good point. And it's like, it's a really different way of, it's a loving way of starting the conversation of like, Hey, what's, as opposed to what's the goddamn ironing board still doing out? Cause I don't really care. Um, right. I care about her. Right. And this is what people often tell you. I, I just um, started watching the formula one, series on netflix because a friend of mine uh jurian uh wrote a book uh, called formula x about how formula one racing is an amazing uh analogy for uh organization design uh not for nothing okay. formula one is the uh largest team sport in the world and when something goes wrong uh when somebody uh, attaches a tire to the to the car Uh, And poorly and the car runs off and the tire flies off and hits someone in the head and they lose the race They don't actually fire that guy. They actually just want to find out what happened Because they really need to know what happened and they need to make him better And they also need to discover there was actually not him. It was like four other things that went wrong It was the bolt. It was visual communication. It was auditory communication. It was their practices procedures and principles um, you don't just fire somebody because they made a mistake. You have a conversation about what they think happened and what really went on if you want things to be better. So
0: right, that's yeah. this, this question
1: of like, what are we designing conversations with and for, right? Like I always say the elements in, in, in the Conversation OS, like the interface for the conversation, there's a reason why we go up to the wall to do a retrospective and say, here's everything that happened. Here's all of the people who were involved. Right, And here's all of the points where it failed so that we can have a spatio-temporal uh, understanding of what happened instead of just a verbal one. Conversations that are just verbal get really hot sometimes really fast. Okay. Right? right, And so that's one of the reasons why I like to design conversations to be visual because it slows them down. Right, The, the cadence of a conversation, the speed of a conversation is really hard to control if you um, don't know how to manage yourself.
0: Right. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, how do you then make conversations visual?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, we, we joke that sticky notes are like, you know, what people think design thinking is all about. Right. Sticky notes are uh, this like unique size that when you use a thick pen, you can kind of fit like uh, one idea on it and they're restickable, which means we can move stuff around. And I interviewed a, a lovely woman on my podcast recently, Esther Derby, and she was the one who really uh, hit me to this idea. I'd never realized how poorly we are designed for uh, temporal awareness. Human beings are really small creatures, right? We, 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 when we're trying to look at systemic problems, we just really look at the tip of the iceberg of like what happened, but we don't look at what's underneath that moment that happened, and that's why doing something like, something like a, a fishbone diagram or a problem tree analysis, all of these visual tools that we have available to us shift a conversation so that it is slowed down so that we're all talking and seeing the same thing, right? And we don't get too hot too fast. And there's a story in, in my book that I, I pawned from Amanda Palmer. I don't know if you're familiar with her work she she's she gave a very well uh watched ted talk on um i think it's called the art of asking um she used to she's she used to work as a um somebody who just like got in one of those weird costumes and just like a human statue who would just like stand there still and just like put out a hand and ask people to you know take a take a paper rose and give her some money and she talked about how she decided to have a meal with her husband Neil Gaiman who's like super cool and she decided one day to be like hey let's have a silent dinner but pass notes <laughs> right like let's doodle our conversation and so they got a pen and paper from the uh, the waiter and they had this written conversation and it's you know it's, it's like these famous epistolatory romances right that you expressing yourself in words is very very different than expressing yourself in speech we can choose our words Right. And when we have a verbal conversation and somebody says to you, like, what went wrong? Or, you know, in an interview when people say, like, name some of your failings and you're like, oh, unless you're totally prepared for that question, you, you, you balk for a moment and you might get a little hot under the collar as you start to think about your failures and you think to yourself, how do I write a failure? How do I tell them a failure that is uh, honest enough but doesn't make me look that bad, right? How do I dial that in? But if you give me five minutes to write down five things on, uh, on a piece of paper, I might give you three or four. And that's why sticky notes are helpful, because we ask people to express their thoughts in a container. And it's a safe container in the same way that a meeting can be a safe container. We say, like, here's what's going to happen. Everyone's going to write down three things that we think happened during this last uh, iteration, this last sprint. What worked, what didn't work. Right. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's crazy to me sometimes how utterly basic it is to do something like a retrospective, but it is hard to make people feel like um, what they're saying, that it's safe to say what they want to say. And it's also hard to make it feel for people like what they say will matter if you've taught them that nothing will be done with what they say. And so conversations don't just happen in one moment. Conversations spread out. I think they ripple in space and time. Cause in that one moment, when you say to somebody like, how are you feeling? And they're like, you don't really want to know, you don't really care.
0: Um, Right. How do you convince somebody that you do? Yeah, no. And, and I think what I, there's like two things that really stand out to me from what you said. And the first one is just like the idea of like the power of pause. You know, I think when you, that's one of the things I found really helpful about sticky notes and having people share ideas in that way is they have a moment to pause and to reflect and to place an idea and process and allow others around them the time and space to do that as well. And the second thing that I really like from what you said is the power of like an ongoing conversation. So by putting the idea or the thought up there, Present, sort of for everyone to see we can ponder we can return we can revisit the idea mix and match the idea And so yeah, you're right something so simple yet. So powerful which as it is it usually goes Yeah, so so I'm so So
1: going back to like your earlier question Which we didn't actually address which is like what are some tips and tricks for making these conversations go better? the 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 elements of the OS like the people interface cadence turn-taking invitation. These are like really, really basic components that are applicable for our individual conversations as well as for our group conversations. So who are the people in the conversation? Who do we invite to a workshop, a meeting, a sprint? Who's in my inner conversation and why? Just doing a stakeholder mapping or a stakeholder analysis of who's at the party can help. And then asking yourself, do we have everybody we need there? Um, this is where, you know, I, I talk about Janet way too much. She's my lovely fiance and she actually has a inner, she has an inner committee piece of paper up on the wall of who's on her, on her inner committee. And I'm actually in her inner committee, which I'm like scared and and flattered by. And she, she loves my work. I love her work. And we, I have her voice in my head and she has my voice in her head. Right. So we can we can invite people into our conversation that we've never had before and say, like, what would, you know, the wisest version of Daniel do? Like, I could invite the wisest version of myself into a conversation if I describe to myself the wisest version of myself and then say, like, what would what would I say? Right? Can I,
0: uh, yeah, no, can I pause you for a minute? Because I don't think I caught that before. So you're saying, like, for example, people then don't always have to be physical people that you're actually working with, actually meeting with. These could also be people that you aspire to be, you know, your future self, or just people. If this person was in the room, this is what it might be like.
1: Yeah. Well, so think about like any design thinking workshop we would have there's the people in the meeting, and then there's the people who are not in the meeting, but who are still somehow present. And that might be stakeholders that we try to represent through empathy maps, personas. So we think about the customers, even though they're not there. Uh, And so there are people who are physically there, but there are a lot of people who are not physically there who are still present. And so I think that is also true with ourselves, right? How many times have you been in a conversation with somebody and they're like, well, this is what my mother always said.
0: All right. <laughs> right. My mother's in my head. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, you know, just, I mean, that can really even go to just like society's norms and things like that. Yes. I
1: mean, Our ancestors. Really, right? right. That's what that, so there's, that's, that's why I have this very weird vision of conversations where they're actually like, they, they propagate in both directions infinitely, right? Because yeah. all of the, all the conversations we've ever had are still reverberating in us. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely
0: balance i think can be so challenging for so many okay so walk us through some of the other elements of i know we have nine walk us through some of the other elements of your canvas os to make up a conversation
1: well so like let's go to amanda palmer's dinner like because we can actually unpack them pretty nicely from that that dinner table conversation was different because they wrote it all down right they changed the interface of the conversation okay right and Conversations have a place. They, they, they exist in space and time. And the place you have the conversation in supports the conversation or not, right? right? Have you ever tried to have a meeting in a loud, a loud room or a room without a whiteboard? <gasps> Shock horror, <laughs> like you're like, I can't have this meeting without a whiteboard. Like we don't have Sharpies, like what are we gonna do? Um, and so the interface, the place, either supports the conversation or not right and that's so like those are those are uh you know we've talked about people right who's in the conversation and why who do we want to disinvite who do we Mm -hmm. want to include uh the interface of the conversation like is it i think of it as um broadband or narrowband interfaces like because right now we've we turned off the video right and that's so that we actually have a um more bandwidth for the for just the audio to be recording well but you're not getting any visual information from me so we actually in some ways we have a a we could have this we could have this conversation over texting it would just be a lot slower (laughs) right but but texting is the best interface if you're bar hopping I say this all the time I don't think I'm the only person who's ever been angry with a friend of mine for calling me when uh when a text would suffice
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, I actually, when I record the intro for this, that's actually one of the things I talk about because, you know, communication platforms in general are so fascinating compared to other areas of technology where something new comes and it almost eliminates what we previously used. For example, like I think like maps and navigation is a great example. Whereas communication, we still mail letters and cards. We still pick up the phone. We still talk face-to-face. But there's all these other layers of social media and texting and FaceTime and Zoom calls and all of this that have been brought into the mix. That, that How do you strike that balance yeah. and really know when and where is best? To kind of, even within a text or even within an email, the construction of that alone can be so daunting for so many that, you know, that's again, why I just find this conversation so fascinating because it's not like, as if like a new technology has come, great, that's the only one we're going to focus on now and all the others have become obsolete. This is one that is becoming more and more and more complex by the, you know, by the day almost. Yeah,
1: very much so. Very much so.
0: So I would really love for you to dig into your error and repair because so many of us when having conversations, the first thing that happens is when you leave or when it's over is, oh my God, I wish I had said this or, oh no, I wish I could take something like that back. So tell us a little bit about the error and repair.
1: I mean, it's really, it's not, it's non-trivial. In a workshop setting, it's, it's pretty easy to be able to say to people, hey, what kind of behavior uh, do we want to support? And what kind of behavior do we not want to support? And what will we do if we don't get that type of behavior? And this is this is called in some circles, designing the alliance. So if we say, I, I don't want to have any uh, phones or laptops. I want everyone to be present here the whole time we're together. Uh, people say, sure, sure. And I say, well, okay, what can I do if you're not doing that? Right. What is the, what is the repercussion for the error? How do I repair it? How do I fix it? And I've, I've been in situations where, um, you know, there, there hasn't been an opportunity to have that really intentional moment to make sure that that's what everyone agrees to. Or even if you do, that there's not some senior dude who just sort of like takes his phone out of his pocket while the team is pitching out their final idea that come that's coming at the end of a, you know, 12 week design sprint. And so what can I do to that guy? Mm-hmm. What I did with this particular man was I actually just walked over to him and I just put my hand on his shoulder really lightly. I used physical touch. I used my physical presence. Now he's a white man and I'm a white man. And so, um, You know, it was a safe touch. It was on the shoulder. Um, I don't know if I would have done the same thing um, with a lady, perhaps, because that could be read as intimidation. But with him, it seemed like the right thing to do with the guy who was uh, asserting his power and his importance by not needing to be fully present, that the lightest touch was uh, bringing him into the present room and actually reminding him that this was important as well. That's how I decided to repair that situation, to get him back in the present moment. Because we needed his feedback. He was like the senior member in the room.
0: Right. And, you know, it's just so interesting listening to you kind of break down these different elements. You really begin to realize how a conversation is not when you open your mouth like and start a meeting or start that agenda that you have planned. So much of it is all of the prep work that goes into what outcome are you really hoping for from the conversation and just that intentionality
1: yeah but even if you make the perfect prep you can't guarantee that someone will uh not slip out their phone right. because we're we're addicted <laughs> we're addicted to them and so like there are ways to and and in the book and you can google this like the um the greater good project i, I can i'll find the link for you or, or it's in the book we can dig it up like there's actual science that around how to say you're sorry, right? There's actually psychologists have actually researched this. where like, how do you say you're sorry to somebody in the best way possible? And we've all experienced the opposite where you're like, I'm sorry that you are hurt, that I think that I bothered you, or that I hurt you and I annoyed you. You're like, that's not a real apology. Right. All right we know what a re- we know what a, what a fake apology feels like. And there's actually science that goes to saying like, hey, a real way of repairing something going wrong is, Uh, acknowledging the other person's feelings, uh, acknowledging that something unexpected happened that nobody, that they weren't happy with. Right. It's acknowledging some form of personal responsibility instead of just being like, no, I'm sorry. You feel bad about it. I didn't do anything wrong. Right. There, there are ways to repair errors that are appropriate. But as you say, the more you prep, the clearer you make the container um the clearer the agreements are for why we're here in the room then then the easier it is to repair the uh any, any bumps that happen along the way.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's really nice also to just be able to acknowledge that, you know, this may not go perfectly because like I said, a lot of us, I think are dealing with, you know, change and just, you know, things that are all that, that are new that sometimes just internally make us uncomfortable. So just being able, I think, even have the space and awareness of, you know, if things may
1: go wrong, you know, things. Oh, they will go wrong. They, they will
0: absolutely. go wrong. Absolutely.
1: Right. We will, you will be misunderstood. Right. That's That's another thing that's important to realize is that just as surely as you have to have people in the conversation, they will misunderstand each other in some way, shape or form because there's no there's no such thing as a perfect. Communication,
0: right. So let's transition a little bit. I, I know we started off kind of, and we've mixed in, and weaved in a few of these different items. But I did want people to get a really clear sense of, like, sort of how you had kind of organized um, the book and just your thinking, because I love this idea of taking it from, you know, like an individual and how we have conversations, but also how the things we create, products, um, you know, and just even organizations as a whole. You said are a conversation with the world. So yeah, walk yeah. us through products and teams,
1: and then move us into organization. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, so I mean, in the in the in the book, and in my understanding, like I I interviewed um, a gentleman by the name of Paul Pangara, who's a, a professor of cybernetics, and and they're modeling a one to one conversation because that's actually the easiest and clearest conversation to see. I talk, you talk, you talk, I talk, I listen. We 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 transact. We we agree or disagree at some point. And if you just instead of having one person. And one person on either side of the interface diagram, you know, it's like, I'm here, you're there, we're having this conversation through this laptop that I have here, right? I could be here and on the other side of the Zoom call could be 10 or 15 people, right? Right, And then the conversation that I'm having with them is what? Like I'm teaching, I'm presenting, I might be facilitating them. And so that dialogue that I'm having with this group of people that I'm, I'm trying to design their conversation with each other, with me right so it's that that's the one to one to a group conversation that i would call facil- facilitation but if you're if if i'm a designer right and i make a product and i put it in the world the the classic lean uh mantra is make test learn or make test and reflect and just like we want to have reflection for ourselves right to know what we know and think what we think a designer needs to make something real artists ship thanks steve jobs and so we ship something into the world and then we go and listen to it we listen to the people what's the what's the word on the street what's the conversation what are people saying and I thought I was the only one who thought of products in this way, but I I finally got it around to reading Jeff Gothelf and Josh Seiden's Sense and Respond. And they straight up talk about this process of sensing and responding from, to the market as a conversation. And so I was like, oh, this is great. It's not just me. I'm not crazy. And I talked to a friend of mine who is uh, the, what is his role? He works at Citibank and he's the, 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 like the lead internal innovation person and he was like every pixel we make is an opportunity to listen to our customers.
0: Oh, wow. Right. I
1: love that. Every pixel we make is either a missed opportunity to listen or a, a really, um, we've really capitalized on that opportunity to not just make stuff and make products, but to listen to what people are doing and saying with them and making something better with what, with what they create. And I think a lot of products and services in the world are hilariously one-sided because they think they don't need to listen to uh, people and what they need anymore. And usually they can get away with it for a little while when markets are slow, but eventually um, somebody will serve their needs more rapidly, more deeply and, and better because they're listening more deeply.
0: I mean, I could not agree more. And I think, you know, this is why, again, I think that some of the work that you're presenting and your book is so powerful because we are not used to thinking about things in this way, it's sort of always been, I mean, yes, conversations individually with just like you said, one-on-one is always been a back and forth. But really now as we expand to think about products, to think about organizations, it has predominantly been one-sided. But I would say, oh yeah, you know, I'd love your thoughts around this too. But really for me, I kind of see like the rise of social media and just like all these people now being able to, it's just really democratized, I think, access to who speaks about what and how and how we listen and how we, I think, just have more access to information for better or for worse that yeah. force us yeah. almost into having to be two-sided.
1: Well, very, very well, multi-sided in this case. Like j- just going back to that ridiculous example of the kid ordering his meal right? in that restaurant, like nobody could stop him from ordering his meal, not not even by kicking him in the shins. And now we have, as you say, platforms where anybody can speak anytime. And there's tons of uh places where you can and Glassdoor is just what only, only one of the most reputable places where you can go to tell the world, uh, what you like or don't like about where you work, where you don't have to wait there. There's totally disintermediated conversations right. where people can have directly with each other, anybody everywhere all over the world. And that's, that's the reality, which, which makes it very hard to, um, if information wants to be free and, uh, information is power <laughs> it's very hard to hold power in in the old ways that we do and so I, that's why i think we need a new type of leadership for this new era which i you know which i i and some other people would term conversational leadership although i don't know if we all agree on what conversational leadership is i think being able to shape conversations at all of these scales that we're talking about just Not just in dialogue and not just facilitating teams and not just designing an org chart, but like, how do you have the conversation with yourself? How do you manage the conversation with the market? These are all dialogues at like the whole scale that um, require presence of mind to manage.
0: What are some of the things you think people can do? So for example, you know, you're in a more traditional leadership role or maybe just the concept is fascinating to you. Maybe you enjoy having conversations and talking with people. What are some of the things that you think can allow people to sort of enhance their abilities in becoming a conversational leader?
1: Well, I mean, ironically, listening better. I believe that uh, the one of the quotes in the book that I'm I'm. Delightfully, delightfully fond of is from uh, Uma Thurman's character in um, Pulp Fiction. She says, "Do you listen, or do you do you just wait to speak?" Uh-huh. And I think a lot of us are just waiting to say our turn. And deep listening is really rare and really powerful. And the I, and the more we listen to people, the more we can actually respond to them intelligently and meaningfully. And so I think deep listening. We, you know, we, we think speaking is what's powerful, but listening is just as powerful. Absolutely. It's like doing versus being, being versus non-being. This listening, deep listening can really hold somebody. And uh, when people talk about, you know, how do you deal with difficult people? I say, listen to them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually listen to them. Uh, it can diffuse things magically. You can find out what people are really about. So I think listening is one of the most powerful things that we can do. And the other is just being more comfortable with being visual. I think making our conversations and our communications more visual makes everything more immediate and makes everything more fluid. This, this, this joke of, are we on the same page is very much easier to answer if we're literally on the same page.
0: Yeah. And it was funny as you were describing that first part of it about um, I, I immediately thought back to our conversation just a little while ago about, you know, making conversations visual, giving people that time and space and, you know, placing the ideas in a visual way um, that really, I think, allows for that. And it's also one of the things that I think is, again, democratizes, you know, who gets a voice at the table and who can really kind of step into these different roles is based upon your ability to listen.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah you know, I think listening is absolutely key. And and I think the third is ironically storytelling perhaps we didn't really talk too much about the narrative structure behind a conversation but i am deeply passionate about conversations basically are stories that we're telling together when we leave a conversation we tell a story about what happened and we don't we don't give the blow by blow we we're, we're left with oh this is what it was about and being able to hold the thread of the conversation together in a way that is coherent and that people leave with a message that you prefer that's a really powerful skill that's That's the power of storytelling.
0: Absolutely, and you know, speaking of storytelling, you know, I kind of, I'm always always intrigued by, you know, that Simon Sinek, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. But I was thinking the other day about how like, you know, he kind of, he said that over a decade ago before (laughs) most of these social platforms really existed. And again, I Mm. think another reason why, like I'm a really big believer in really getting people to understand that just because somebody else is having a conversation around a topic, you have a space if you have the space and power to do so as well and it doesn't take away from anything anybody else is doing nor will it take away from anything you plan on doing because Mm. i think you know kind of with those social platforms one extended step is you need more and more people to advocate for what your why is so tell me a little bit about organizations as conversations because that simon Sinek quote is one i think that really resonates with so many people
1: yeah, I mean, I'm not an org design expert by any means, um, but I do see the convers the 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 organizations that I work with as uh, you, might, you might describe them as like a, a river of conversations. If you've ever looked at a map of a river delta with all these little uh, rivulets sort of moving around and recombining, we need to know where the conversation's going right the conversation should be going somewhere right. it isn't just flowing around aimlessly and there are certain flows in an organization that are easy and there are some are hard it's really hard to swim upstream to go against whatever that that flow is i think that's one of the challenges that i see in organizations is that there's literally some people you're not supposed to talk to and when you're when you're not allowed to talk to your customers or when you're not allowed to um, use certain words, or when the vocabulary inside of the company is just complete and utter garbage. Uh, I I posted an article that somebody else wrote about this on Vulture recently, where we literally get together in meetings, and a, a company has a culture where you're like, let's put a pin in that, or let's double click, and let's circle back around, and you know, let's you know, none of these words mean anything. When I'm a consultant and I go into an organization, they, are, um, they have this whole internal vocabulary that they think makes it easier for them to communicate, but actually hides so much meaning. I think be learning how to speak in plain language would be such a, a boon for most of these organizations to just literally say what they mean, right? Not to say, like, I don't have bandwidth for that. Just say, like, I, I don't have time for your request because I'm at 100% right now. Right, and, and to be able to have that conversation, which is not easy to have, to say, what would you like me to deprioritize in order to prioritize what you're asking me to, to look at, right? So that, that's a very different conversation than the ones that, that organizations normally have.
0: Absolutely. Would you, agree, would, you, would you say that it starts with the individuals, that it's more of a bottom-up approach versus a top-down, or could it go either way?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'm a I'm a middle out fan from from the early days of. I don't know if you've ever watched. It's a terribly crude joke from um, Silicon Valley the, from the first no, season. So I, I apologize did. for making it. So
0: many people have told me about that, and I just I'm just not being able to get to it.
1: You can Google it. We won't get into it. I I think it's wrong. Like <sighs> the whole point one of the one of the suppositions of of um, holacracy, for example, is that. Whoever is nearest to the customer knows the most about the problem, and that those people who are close to the problem should be given freedom to uh, act as they to act quickly to uh, address whatever challenges that they're seeing. Do you but see that then, of course, more of a norm. Uh, I think that's becoming more part of the rhetoric. I don't think that's nef- I don't think that's normal at all. Yeah, I think that's actually really hard to do. Right, because there's very uh, there's there's not a lot of trust in a lot of instances where you're like well how much how much money are we going to ena- enable our uh, frontline employees to give back to the customer <laughs> in order to placate them right how many discount codes or like how much are they allowed to just wave away and fix and and that's that's giving them a lot of power versus making them like go up the chain and say, we'd like to do this. Like, is it okay for me to give them a 50% discount because we really screwed this up for them. And by that point, they've posted it all over social media. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, it's by no means trivial and it's not easy at all. Right. I think, I think, um, power, you know, is still seen as coming from the top down. We still believe that organizations are managed from the top down because they are, um, be- because organizations are organisms, and they they try to keep themselves together <laughs> and coherent, and that that means that you know we want the brain, the quote unquote brain of the organization, to be in charge, not the fingers and the toes. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So Daniel, to wrap this up, because I've taken so much of your time already, um, tell me like you know two things that you hope people take away from your book.
1: Oh man, well I hope that people actually. Think about the their own ability to shape their conversations for the better, right like that 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 they can take responsibility for shaping them in such as a way that they believe they should go the The last page of the book is that like the world needs your conversational leadership. It doesn't know it, but it does right, right. And so what I would like everyone to believe is I can create a more ideal world through intentionality, which is an incredibly naive thing to think, but I think it anyway. The other thing is that I hope that people start drawing their conversations as a way of mapping out what they intend and what they uh, hope will happen with another person. And that's a great way to invite other people into the conversation you want them to have. Right. so when we talk about building shared vision for a dialogue drawing a map for somebody is a great way to describe the journey you want to go on together with them and this is true for a conversation as well as for a vacation and so i hope that people actually come away uh doodling i i i kept i thought about paying somebody to be a better doodler in the book I, my my doodles are pretty average but i left them in there because i i want people to feel comfortable with Doodling their own dialogues inner and outer and to get more comfortable with that way of communicating with themselves and with other people because I think it's really powerful. So those are the two takeaways like you can do it and start drawing. (laughs)
0: That is so beautiful, and I love that because I think you dived so deep into how you can actually bring those to fruition and how you can practice those strategies better throughout the conversation that we had today. So it was actually a really beautiful way, I think, to kind of wrap that up. Daniel, if people want to learn more from you, connect with you, chat with you, where can they find you, or where do you prefer to have people meet you?
1: Well, if you want to find me on the internet, (laughs) that's That's, one. That's exactly what
0: I mean. Where can
1: can, we can hunt me down on the internet? you can find me at conversationfactory.com, which is where my podcast and the book all live. Um, and if you want to find me in real life, I'm, I'm in New York City and I'm off, often at the Norwood Club. You can always stop by and knock on the door, try to have coffee with me.
0: <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so excited for people to be able to read your book, learn more about your work and wish you all the best. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you still have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Sprint to Success with Design Thinking community.